Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells... Amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy, the way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well. I am fine. I uh, I just, uh, I'm a bit sad. I'm a bit sad because I've been reading all about Britney Spears this week and I have been on the free Britney train for a long time, but hearing it in her own words, how devastating her life is. Just because she was a talented child once who grew into a talented teenager and a talented woman and therefore was taken advantage of for all of the money that she could make other people and therefore kept in what really looks a bit like a legal hostage situation right in front of the whole world. It's just so disturbing. If you're not familiar with the Free Britney movement, I strongly suggest you look it up because it is extraordinary just to see that the days of taking a woman and illustrating her pain as hysteria and madness and and not really looking out for her and trying to cure her sadness and instead just sort of mocking her, demonising her, villainizing her and imprisoning her in some way. It's just devastating. It feels like something you would have read about in a book 200 years ago, not something that could happen now in this age of alleged women's empowerment in 2021. How is this still happening? How is this woman still having to beg and testify for her freedom? Someone who's able to do world tours and, you know, residency in Vegas and who's able to judge a, a massive reality TV show, one of the biggest reality TV shows in the world. She's able to do all of that, but she's supposedly not able to uh, look after herself in any way and cannot have any freedom. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, today's episode is not about that. Today's episode is an episode I released last year that I wanted to bring back just in case there was anyone who hasn't heard this episode. And even if you have, I strongly suggest that you listen to it again, because it remains the single most informative and interesting and mind-blowing and inspiring hour of my life, maybe. I have activist and and artist and, and spokesperson and just general iconic joy, Alok, on my podcast. And they came onto this podcast to teach me and my listeners about non-binary, about gender, about feminism, about the history of trans people and, and about all of this, you know, uproar that is still going on, even amongst liberals around trans rights. And so considering everything we've been reading about in the news, considering the frustrating words of Caitlyn Jenner weaponizing trans issues uh, against trans people in order to try and gain, I guess, popularity amongst the Republican group. And just with so many devastatingly ignorant fucking people in power speaking about trans issues with really no 
true intellect or information and the fact that it's pride and the fact that there's still so much for all of us to continue to learn. I wanted to bring this episode back because rather than putting a loke through the labour of having to come back and explain all of this to me again, they already said it perfectly the first time. So please just sit back, get a pen and a paper. You're going to want to take notes because this episode is so extraordinary. Please join me in falling madly in love with a loke. Hello and welcome to Ai Wei. How are you? I'm thrilled to be here. It's such a shame that not enough people can see you right now because you look <laughs> bloody stunning. Alok is giving me bodycon and there's pink and there's red and there's, ah, oh, there's bright orange. You've got, <laughs> what is going on behind you? Is that a party? It looks like a party. It looks like New Year's yeah. Eve. I've got a whole party set up for Zoom with like good lighting. I figure if we're going to have to be in these quarantine times, I have to make it glamorous. Oh, I love that. How is your quarantine going? You know, I want to say that it's actually been the most creative time of my life. And I feel like such an irritable person saying that because I'm just so productive and I hate that about myself. Like I want to be able to just like relax and like chill, but instead I'm like reading tons of books and like writing a lot. And I I feel like it's not going to be sustainable though. So we'll see what happens. It better not be. Otherwise we're not going to be able to be friends because I can't handle, (laughs) I can't handle that level of overachievement. How dare, how dare you be constructive with this time? I know. Oh God, are you just growing spiritually or feeling emotionally Absolutely. better than ever? I'm, I'm that, I am that obnoxious Fuck. friend on the phone just being like, can we please name our intentions for the rest of our life? Like, what's our five-year plan? Let's go. What were you like <laughs> at school? Were you this much of a nerd? Yes, absolutely. I literally have to admit, this is the first time I've ever said this in my life. <laughs> I used to make pie charts on how many hours I was hanging out how many hours I was working, how many hours I was organizing, and how many hours I was sleeping and try to get my optimum distribution of time. Such an Indian. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm a rotten part of the pack. Like I'm the runt. I don't have any of these. I don't have any of these organized skill sets. Well, good for you. But it's to my fault because I need to learn how to relax a lot more. So that's part of my goals too, is I've been watching 90 Day Fiance. I know I'm like five years late to the show, But it's the first time in my life I fully understood what binge watching was. Well, you've been really busy. I have watched your career just grow and grow and grow as an activist, as a writer, as an artist, and just as such a a voice of resonance in our time over the last couple of years. I also, I wonder, and this is a more serious note, but quite a few of my friends who are trans or gender non-conforming, visibly, uh, obviously, have found this to be a nice respite because going out day to day, while important because it's great to be able to socialize, it's also not very safe. It doesn't feel very safe. Has that been your experience? Yes. You know what I'm doing during quarantine is I'm wearing mini skirts and bodycon dresses <laughs> and like my entire body is just basically revealed because for the first time I don't have to fear harassment on the day to day. And these are obviously pieces that I would wear still, but mm-hmm. I would wear them knowing that I was going to be harassed and being able to wear them and develop a relationship with my own self-image without fear, I think it's been so therapeutic for me. For sure. What does your harassment look like? Do you mind me asking? No, totally. I I think it's really important 
to talk about the specificity of harassment against gender nonconforming people. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes in dialogues around street harassment, we imagine it only to be cis women experiencing harassment from cis men. Mm -hmm. But when you're a gender nonconforming person, you experience harassment from everybody. It's an equal opportunity buffet and everyone is trying to hit at the pinata, if you will. (laughs) So I literally have people spitting on me, throwing trash at me, commenting on what I wear, taking photos of me without my consent, following me. Um, making fun of me, inquiring about my genitalia, inquiring about why I'm wearing what I'm wearing. I literally have complete strangers come up to me and say, can you explain to me why you're dressed like this? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have people touch me. Like they'll just hug me. Even when they're saying that they're supportive of me, there's this idea that because I transgressed gender norms, I'm not allowed to have boundaries at all. So people can transgress whatever boundaries with me. So people will come up and just kiss me all over my face and say, you're fabulous, darling. Or like, hug me and squeeze me. And I'm like, I'm literally just trying to get to a meeting right now. This is not a performance for you. And I think that what it has really taught me is people don't see us as humans. They see us as spectacular kind of freak shows for their entertainment. And that's both people who are supportive of us and people who are trying to bring us down. It's like, can you actually just see me as like a regular person living a regular life and not someone here for your entertainment? And do you fear violence when you go out in particular at night, et cetera? Yes, I have to be really intentional about where I'm going, when I'm going, who I'm going with, who I communicate, um, where I'll be. I share my location with my friends all the time. And we've developed a kind of practice. A lot of my friends are other gender nonconforming people of color. And what we've learned is like, we can't rely on other people to keep us safe. We have to keep each other safe. So we share our location. We check in with each other when we're getting home. And we also process like, what was it like for you to wear that outfit today? And I think that's how I'm able to keep going is when I was younger, I didn't have anyone to process the harassment I was going through. But now I have a vibrant community that's like, that's awful. I'm sorry. You're amazing. And I think what's frustrating as well is that you have so many people who then blame you for your own harassment based on what you're wearing, which is something that, you know, typically cis women have to deal with all the time. If we are assaulted or or harassed in the street, we're asked, what were we wearing? And I feel like you get that from every single side of the fact that, well, you chose to wear a, you chose to wear a dress. And also you don't visually technically conform to either side, which perfectly stands Mm -hmm. in line with your uh, gender non-conforming in the -hmm. fact that you still maintain your chest hair or sometimes have a beard but also you wear the dresses and the makeup and I think that you look stunning for whatever it's worth but because of that there's like an extra layer then where perhaps even trans people sometimes don't know what to do with that yes absolutely you know what I think that one of the most painful parts about being gender non-conforming is we have been fighting for everyone since the very beginning Mm -hmm. and yet everyone turns around and betrays us and says that we're too much or not enough. They'll say, you're too flamboyant, you're too feminine, you're too hairy, you're too brown, you're too vocal. Or they'll say, you don't pass enough, or you're not beautiful enough, or you're not quiet enough. And it's heartbreaking to me because I realize that it's other people working out the lessons around beauty, around desire, around worth that have been indoctrinated into them out on me. So they're just regurgitating exactly what has been said to them, to me. And I'm like, wasn't that painful for you? Why would you do the Mm. same thing to someone else? And so I think a lot of what I'm trying to work through as an artist is how do we transform pain so that we don't transmit it to other people? And how do we actually recognize that we have to heal 
before we can actually love other people in the way that they deserve to be loved. And when we don't heal, we actually can be very dangerous to other people. And I see this, especially when it comes to trans community. You know, when I first started to become part of trans community, I was in my early 20s because I didn't have access to trans community before then. And I would start to attend trans supports groups. And when I was wearing a dress, people would think that I was a, quote, pre-op trans woman is the term that they would use. And they would say, oh, are you going to change your name? And they would call me she and they'd be like my sister. And I'd be like, hey, everyone, actually, like, I feel comfortable with who I am right now. And then people would be like, well, actually, no, Um, you have to change your name. You have to have surgery. You have to have hormones. Otherwise, you're going to continue to experience violence. And I'd be like, I totally understand that. And I recognize that like a lot of us are having to be worried about violence every day, but I actually feel like who I am right now is who I want to be. And they wouldn't understand that. And then I would come to a meeting wearing a pair of jeans and then they would call me he, him and think that I was just a male ally. And there was just no space to actually be like, hey, everyone, my gender is who I am, not what I look like. My gender expression is something that I do on the basis of what I'm feeling in a given day. Mm -hmm. But my gender identity is internally what I know myself to be. So what exactly is non-binary for those who don't know? Let's just break it all Mm -hmm. down. Totally. So non-binary refers to anyone who identifies outside of the binary of man, woman, male, female. So there are many identities under the umbrella of non-binary. A non-binary person could be bi-gender, meaning that they're both a man and a woman. They could be agender, meaning that they don't have a gender. They could be gender fluid, like me, meaning that my gender shifts on time and space and isn't fixed into an identity. And it's important to understand that there's as many ways to be non-binary as there are non-binary people. We would never assume that all cis women look the same. We understand that some cis women like wearing these clothes. Some cis women don't would never wear a gown and prefer a pantsuit. And a cis woman wearing a pantsuit doesn't invalidate her womanhood. But for us as non-binary people, because people fundamentally think that we're making it up and because people think that we're not real, every day is kind of like an examination on trying to reveal us to be frauds. So, so many times our detractors will like share photos of us prior to us identifying as Mm non-binary and be like, see, look, they're really a man. And it's like, no, actually, we're allowed to look like what we want to look like in the same way cis people are. And what is it, would you say, that made you uncomfortable with either, either of the binaries? What is it about either? And and I say this from a place of no judgment whatsoever. I just would like to know your personal experience. So a lot of people ask me how I became such a good performer, which I am. And it's because I spent the first 18 years of my life pretending to be a straight man. (laughs) And I was really, I was kind of amazing at it, but also really bad at it. So it was like both tragic and amazing, kind of like a tragic comedy. That's quite funny. That reminds me a bit (laughs) of how, you know... American actors sometimes complain about English actors coming over and taking all their jobs. And Mm -hmm. I feel like the reason that the British make quite good actors is because we've been lying that we've been happy for a really (laughs) long time because we've been told to cover up our depression and just drink it down with a pint of beer and, you know, have a stiff off a lip. So uh, I know what that means. I genuinely, I'd never had acting lessons before I did The Good Place. And I genuinely think the fact that I covered down, I covered up a nervous breakdown for like 20 right. years totally. is how I know how to act just pretending totally. to be fine so I hear you. I just picked up on all the cues I was being like okay they do this they do this and so I was incredibly unhappy growing up like I suffered from extreme depression 
extreme sadness and suicidality. I never even used the men's restroom once in high school. I would literally hold it from seven in the morning <gasps> until 6 p.m. at night because I was petrified of being around other men. Men terrified me because I was still very effeminate. And so no matter how much I tried to like wear the ugliest tattered Hollister jeans and like Abercrombie and Fitch secondhand polos. I, I've been there, my I friend. I never fit in. <laughs> I never fit in because my voice betrayed me, because my gestures betrayed me. And so I never allowed any video recordings. I hated being in photos. I didn't want any audio recordings because I really wanted to everyone to believe that I was a straight man. Let's let's go back a second because there's a reason that you started trying to fit in with yeah. typical uh men uh, in their aesthetic, right? You grew up with super feminist family members. Your mother mm -hmm. is a feminist organizer. I believe your grandmother as well is, or your aunt? My aunt, yeah. Your aunt, that was it. And these are avid feminists and people who advocate against, you know, uh, domestic violence. And you grew up with lots of sisters in a very strong female background. And I want you to please tell the audience about what you were like as a little child. <laughs> I was the definition of freedom as a child. So I had a very unique experience because my mom was an Indian feminist. And my aunt was a major lesbian feminist. So I grew up around lesbian feminism, which I just wish every child was being around. I agree. Because my aunts would literally play video games with me and would choose the like strongest, badassest female characters and be like, look, women are strong. Women kick ass. So like from a young age, I was indoctrinated into like anyone doubting womanhood or women as less than. They were a patriarch and I knew what patriarchy was. And I knew specifically what patriarchy looked like in Indian communities, which is often very unique because we have a simultaneous adoration of women. Like my mom is the best person in the world. She cooks the best biryani in the world. And then privately, they experience a lot of harassment and violence, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a child, I loved my sister more than anyone else in the world. She was everything to me. And so I just naturally wanted to wear her clothes because I loved her and because I thought her clothes were just cuter. Floral prints neon colors. Like I was giving you very eighties children fashion. Like I was just about vibrant color. <laughs> I had these dolphin sandals with like knee high socks. Like I was really into it. And my parents just let me wear whatever I wanted. Yeah. And I actually used to perform and I write about this in my book, uh, beyond the gender binary. I used to perform in kind of my mom's chunis and salvar to the latest Bollywood songs at all the Indian potluck dinner parties that we would host at our house. I would literally say, okay, now everyone, shh, and I'd play the song and I'd just make this dramatic entrance and I'd just be dancing around doing my interpretive dancing. And everyone cheered for me because I was a kid and they thought it was cute and they thought that I just loved my sister and it was not a problem. But then one of the incidences I write about in my book as well is like in first grade at a talent show at my very conservative white Christian kind of community school, I performed um, an interpretive number to I Love My India. And I'm dancing around the stage doing somersaults, like just so free. And the entire auditorium, parents and children laugh at me. And I remember that being the first moment I experienced shame in my life, mm -hmm. where the things that I thought were the most beautiful, were the most thrilling, were the most fun and expressive. I learned that those were wrong. And not just that what I was doing was wrong, but that I as a person was wrong. And that's what shame does is it actually makes your behavior into your personhood. And so when I felt like I was wrong, I just 
I lost all of my joy, my creative expression, my dynamicism. And I tried as aggressively as possible to be unremarkable and to be unvisible. And that was the moment disassociation started in my life. So the first kind of half of my life, I was just not there. I gave everyone what they wanted to see, like an extremely smart, well-learned, thoughtful, kind person. And inside, I felt extreme turmoil. Every day felt so much pain and anguish because I could never be honest about what I actually felt. Mm. And I think I'm still recovering from that because when you spend so many years in your formative years disappearing yourself, Still to this day, when people talk about me growing up, it's like they're talking about a character in a novel or it's like they're talking about a stranger. Or I see photos of myself and they feel nostalgic, but I don't look at that photo and I don't see myself. Mm. So I just feel like I was you checked torn out. apart. Yeah. yeah, you totally checked out. I'm so sorry that that was your experience. And I think it's so wonderful that at the young age of, what was it, 18, you decided that's it, <laughs> done. <laughs> And I'm coming out with a bang. Yeah. What was that? What was that turning point for you where you were sick of trying to conform? Where the pain of lying, not only to your, because it it makes you feel so detached lying about who it is that you are. Because you're not just lying mm-hmm. to everyone else. You're also being dishonest and unintegral to yourself. And it almost right. creates this like moat between you right. and yourself where you just feel right. so incredibly detached. I think that's where the numbness right. of some depression comes from right. is that you're a liar. Right. And it totally. feels and bad. I think that even the other layer is that I was experiencing so much things. So I was experiencing so much bullying and harassment and I couldn't speak about that too. So not only did I have to deal with my own Why? internal Sorry. shame. Why couldn't you speak about your own bullying and harassment? Because I knew that if I spoke about what was happening to me, it would out me and that would create more violence. Right. So what would happen at, at a high school like mine, we're talking about like suburban conservative Texas, is you would hear about a suicide of a kid in school and you would know that it was because they're being bullied for being gay or trans. But no one would speak about it. No counselors would talk about it. There was no literature at all to even speak about it. And you just kind of went along with your day. And you constantly thought, I'm going to be that kid. Either they're going to kill me or I'm going to kill myself. And that's what I genuinely believed for the majority of my life. And no one should have to grow up like that. A constant fear that people are just going to show up at your house, burn it down because you are a faggot. And that's what I fundamentally believed such that it wasn't just about lying in terms of language. It was lying in terms of I would change the way that I walked and then I moved. I would deepen my voice. I would pretend to not like things. Like I remember when I was in fifth grade, when I said that I liked the band Coldplay, someone said that makes you gay and gay people need to be exterminated on an island away from society so they won't infect people with AIDS. Like that's literally, like when I was nine or ninth grade, I went to a camp where we were doing like a mock kind of government structure. And one of the policies that someone proposed was state execution of gay people as if it was like Armageddon style in a gladiator ring where you could all watch as you saw them be killed, right? And so that's why you get really irritated when people say, well, you know, trans people have male privilege because they grew up being socialized as male. Being socialized as male for me was constant violence, harassment, threats to my safety, was literally me never using the restroom, me fearing being around boys at every single moment of my life, mm-hmm. me being shamed for every single part of my life. Even have, being friends with girls was seen as being gay, which is so ridiculous. Yeah. And so I think that I actually, when I was 18, 
I was strategic because I hate how we call young LGBT kids closeted. I think a lot of us are strategic. We know that if we disclose who we are, we'll experience more persecution because there's no resources, because there's no community centers, Mm -hmm. because there's no housing if our parents kick us out, because there's no employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us are strategic. Trans people that are trying to currently, during a bloody pandemic, trying to take away their right to have health care. Totally. And that's why I don't shame trans people for not being visible because for me, it's like, Hey, actually you do what you need to do to survive. And I don't judge you. I don't think that being visible is more authentic. And that's why I think it's very dangerous when we say so-and-so doesn't look trans. What does that even mean? Mm. People are trans. And for some people, they might not have the money. They might not have the family support or the safety. I was able to come out when I was 18 because I knew that my family would support me and because I worked really hard in school so that I could leave to go away for university. And that was my plan. I studied so hard because I said, I am going to get out of here. And the minute I'm out of here, I'm going to fight like hell to make sure that no one else had to go through what I went through. And so I like to say I didn't just come out as gay. That was the only word I had at the time. I knew that there was something different around me in terms of my gender, but I just didn't even know what trans or non-binary was. But I also committed to myself to, I'm going to live a feminist life. And I would just tell everyone, people would be like, what do you want to do in college? I was like, I'm going to study feminism and I'm going to fight for women. (laughs) And I just like, everywhere I went was talking about sexism and patriarchy. And that's why it's so painful for me, Jamila, to see how the feminist movement by and large has not reciprocated that love and commitment Mm. to trans and gender nonconforming people. Because me declaring my trans femininity came from my mom declaring her own autonomy as a woman. I saw my grandmother, a very traditional Hindu Indian woman, start to paint in her late 70s when she had never painted before. And I would go up to her and ask, Grandma, why are you painting? Or Nani, why are you painting? And she would say to me, this is all of my repressed rage. My entire life, I could never say anything. I just was expected to be docile and cook and clean. My art is the only place I've ever had to express yourself. Never let anyone not let you express yourself. And those lessons, those intergenerational lessons of women emancipating themselves from gender norms taught me that I too could emancipate myself from gender norms. And to see cis women feminists not understand how self-determination of gender is an extension of feminism is so painful to me. I agree. We're going to talk about this in a second after this break because there's a lot to say. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal 
that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Okay, so we're back. I'm still recovering from all of the unbelievably traumatic things that you had said in front of you as a child about your own identity or people who had an identity mm-hmm. that you had to, that you were covering up for safety, mm-hmm. for literal survival. Um, we just started touching on the way that the feminist movement has chosen to exclude trans and uh, gender non-conforming people. This is something that I have become aware of uh, more and more so as my feminism has become more, I guess, Uh, more known or more globally circulated. I have become, because I'm a very outspoken trans ally uh, and ally for those who consider themselves or who are non-binary and gender non-conforming, I've become like a lightning rod where feminists, rad feminists is what they call themselves, often trans exclusionary rad feminists, radical feminists. So if you see the word on social media, TERF, That's what it means. It's a trans exclusionary radical feminist. They have started to turn on me and consistently harass me because they consider me a traitor to feminism for aligning myself with uh, trans people and gender nonconforming people. And I cannot understand their problem. I I genuinely, I can't even, I'm a practical and relatively bright person and it makes no sense to me. Because for for starters, why would we ever deny ourselves more allies? What part of us thinks (laughs) that we're winning this war? What part of us thinks that things are going great for us? Why would we ever shut the door on human beings who want to join us and fight for our rights, who've been fighting for our rights long before we were even able to? Some of at, at the forefront of so many big movements that have liberated women have been trans women. Right. And so it makes no sense to me, especially considering how much we know how oppressed we are. We know what it feels like to be consistently bullied, harassed and pushed into corners. Why would we ever take that and subject someone else to that? So I wonder if you can possibly shed some light on why, I think, what are they called? Gender critical? Yeah. And TERFs, what what their problem is. Right. I want us, I guess, to begin by saying it's not even that trans women are allies. It's that trans women are women. Yes. And so what happens is we would never call, say, 
a woman with a disability an ally to the women's movement. Mm -hmm. What happens is that we understand trans people Mm -hmm. as something separate than women. And let me give an example to illustrate that. So during Women's History Month, I often speak about the need for trans-inclusive feminism. And I have trans-exclusionary feminists say, stick to pride, that's your month. Yeah. And I'm sitting there like, wait, are you presuming that all women are cisgender and heterosexual? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, you are. And this is the problem with contemporary feminism. The experiences of white, middle-class, cisgender, straight women Mm -hmm. are taken as the default experience for all women all across the world. So the way that they define patriarchy and the way that they experience violation from patriarchy is standardized as the only form of patriarchy. Mm. And that's what cis and white privilege looks like, is being able to take your particular experiences and say that's the only experience. But actually, there are many experiences of patriarchy. And trans women and trans feminine people like me experience something called trans misogyny. And what trans misogyny looks like is the constant scrutiny of our bodies as if there's something fundamentally wrong with us and not that there's something fundamentally wrong with a binary gender system. So what that looks like is in my career, every interview I do, every room I'm in, people are literally just gawking at me. They can't even listen to what I'm saying. There's an obsession with my body. I see people looking at my genitalia, trying to figure out. I have people commenting lewdly about everything, everywhere I go. I'm hypersexualized or I'm hyperdesexualized. Mm-hmm. I'm seen as an animal. And all of that is transmisogyny where I'm not even able to speak in the room because people just want to put me as the evening entertainment. That's what transmisogyny is. You imagine us as just on your, on your, on your drag shows, but you don't actually imagine us in your boardrooms. You don't actually imagine us on your TV shows. Mm-hmm. You don't imagine us on your subways. Transmisogyny is also about policing us so that you never see us. So what happens is so often people will say, trans women and trans people, this is a new critique. This is new. You're just new. And it's like, actually, we've been here since the very beginning. It's just that you hit us. You kept us away. And now we're building our collective power and we're challenging that erasure. And so what's happening is that the entitlement of cis women is being challenged. And for me, trans-exclusionary feminism is not just about people saying, I hate trans women or trans people. That, that we would never say racism is just people who explicitly say, I, I am a racist. Mm-hmm. Trans-exclusionary feminism is also the way that feminism defines patriarchy. So mainstream feminism understands patriarchy as just men oppressing women. Mm-hmm. But actually, trans-inclusive feminism understands that patriarchy is the defining of the gender binary and the policing of everyone into gender norms. And so what that looks like is if you are a woman who's seen as more muscular or has body hair, you're seen as mannish. And if you're a man who's seen as frail or emotional, you're seen as gay or sensitive. And everybody is policed into these gender stereotypes and gender norms Mm -hmm. of what a man or what a woman is supposed to look like. And man and woman are supposed to be distinctly opposites. Like if you're feminine, then there could be no ounce of masculinity in you. And if you're masculine, even liking Coldplay is seen as you being feminine. And so ridiculous. So ridiculous. So what trans-inclusive feminism says is we're trying to challenge gender norms 
so that every person can self-determine their own gender. And I think a lot of feminists don't understand that, that what gender self-determination looks like is that we're trying to create a world where everyone can safely express who they are without fear of violence. And for me in 2020, I can't even go outside without fearing violence. So to hear these gender critical feminists say that we have all this magical power, I'm like, sweetie, give me that power. Give me that power when Mm -hmm. people are throwing trash on me on the street. Give me that power where my entire career, I've had to fight tooth and nail to even be listened to because people just want to gawk at me. Give me that power whenever actually... What, what's happening in this country right now is that there are hundreds of pieces of anti-trans leg- legislation trying to disappear trans people from existing in public spaces being used and justified in the name of feminism. Why isn't mainstream feminism saying anti-trans discrimination is profoundly anti-feminist? Feminism actually supports trans people, but it's only trans people who even know about these bills. It's only trans people who know that six trans women were murdered in the past five weeks. It's only trans people who know that in Idaho, they passed two unconstitutional bills that are literally trying to define us out of existence. Why is it only us who knows? It's because we're seen as disposable. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do with my work is to actually challenge that and say, trans women and trans feminine people don't just belong in feminism, but feminism needs to listen to us as leaders. We're not just trying to be ornamental, we're trying to be instrumental. Mm -hmm. I agree. God, I want to clap. I might just do it. I might just clap. You got me on a soapbox that I'm like, woo! No, I think it's great. And also we just don't think about how harmful the binaries are. We don't think about, you know, we we look at binary in such a kind of costume way of what how people right. dress or how they do their makeup or whatever, what their body type looks like. No one talks enough, and I try to talk about this all the time, uh, in particular in sympathy to men of what, mm patriarchy feels like and what binary has closed us off into you know and it's something that has hurt me and so many of my the people I love the most so much are these these standards that we're supposed to live up to emotionally you know I'm not supposed to express myself or else I'm aggressive and I'm hysterical and I'm bossy and I'm nasty and I'm rude and I'm difficult and at the same time my boyfriend releases uh, beautiful love songs that are about his own feelings and his sensitivity and he gets called sad boy music and mocked and ridiculed over that and this this is a whole genre Frank Ocean's in this genre like all kinds of people uh, most of my male friends have got severe mental illness now in no small part down to the fact that they have never been told that it is okay for them to express themselves in any way other than explicit violence they're not allowed to cry they're not allowed to say they feel sad or heartbroken or lonely or rejected. They just swallow it and it's killing them. We have the highest numbers of male suicide of all time. Young, young male suicide. And it's just, it's these these setups, these standards that are so modern in the history of time, which I'm going to get you to explain to us just how modern they are in a second. They have forced us to conform to something that may not naturally be who 
we are emotionally. It's so unfair to be forced into these categories. And we have no idea who we really are. We can't have the argument of nature and nurture when we have been conditioned from the second we're given like a pink onesie to wear from the minute we are born. And every the first thing we see on television is princesses and a prince and the prince comes to rescue the, the weak and lonely and, and desperate princess. We are conditioned by our mothers, by our fathers, by everything we see out in the world, by our clothes by art, by media. So how the fuck are any of us going to know who we actually are? How can we when we've been like soaked in gender rules? I think it's a constant process of self-reflection and unlearning. Yeah. And we bully so that we, in in the hopes that we will not be Bullied. I um, I remember you once discussing the fact that there was one boy in particular who bullied you at school, and uh, bullied you really badly throughout school. And that recently you got a message from them on social media. Will you tell me about that message? Yeah, totally. I got a message from them saying, "I'm really sorry that I tormented you in high school. The truth is, I'm actually bisexual." And I couldn't name it at the time. And I saw you and I felt like if I believed you, then people wouldn't think that I was queer too and that I could get away with just being perceived as straight. And it was a real you know, moment for me because that is exactly what my work is about, is about believing that oftentimes the reason people are harassing me is because they are scared or they're lonely or they don't have enough love or care. And so I responded and I said, thank you so much for letting me know that I love you and I support you. And I'm so happy that you're out and and that you're part of my community in this way. We see that so often, (laughs) the amount of times that we see a legislator who is fiercely anti-gay rights, it turns out that they are gay and they've been caught Mm -hmm. with a young gay person in a sex act. It's so it's it's such an age old story. It's so easily identifiable. You know, not in all cases, but with so many cases where where someone bullies someone because they see something of themselves in that other person and they're afraid of it and they think by beating you they will beat it out of themselves. It's a it's an emotional yes. statement for them and it's so pathetic. And that's what makes trans misogyny so lethal mm-hmm. is because men have beat out their own femininity in themselves Mm -hmm. so that when they see someone who looks like me, who they're often reading as a feminine man, they see a possibility of what they could have been if they didn't torment themselves. And so they externalize the violence that they've done to themselves onto me. And it took me a long time to realize that because at first, when I first moved to New York City, and I was wearing skirts and dresses every day. That, that first few years was some of the most petrifying of my life. And it was heartbreaking because as a young person, I dreamed that one day I would be able to like move to a city like New York and I'd be safe and included and accepted and yeah. I'd be able to wear what I wanted. And then there I was as, an, as a young adult, not able to and petrified and terrified. And I had to realize, oh, wait, this is going to be the rest of my life. There's never going to be a moment where I don't feel persecuted where my safety is being challenged because other people haven't actually done their own healing work around gender so that I trigger in them their own repression. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time for me to realize that because at first I was just angry. I was so upset. I was like, this is unfair. Like, I want to be able to like be free. Like, I want to be able to just like- You're not hurting anyone. You know? Hello, like I want to be able to just exist, like walk around in public, like go to the bodega. Like, I just want to be able to- And, And I also just- 
not selfishly, but I wanted to have a self because for so long in my life, I was living other people's dreams. And for the first time, I was like, this is me. And I was so excited to show the world, this is me. Look at the hard work I've put into this. And to have that rejected like whack-a-mole, they just literally tried to disappear me. At first, I was so angry and I was so hurt. But then I took that rage and that anger and I brought it into my poetry and I started to write and write and write. And what I found is that anger became compassion and that grief became love. And I started to realize I love all of these men who harass me more than they love themselves. And my love is so tremendous because it is a historical love of trans politics that we have been here at the margins of your society saying, when you're ready to love yourself, come to me. When you're ready to stop policing your bodies to fit into these arbitrary stereotypes, come to me. And that is the legacy that I learned from elder trans women in New York who taught me, hey, Alok, actually, you're beautiful in the parts of you that people shame you for. You're beautiful for the very things that you grew up hating about yourself. And that ability to take the shame, to take the grief, to take the pain, to take the anger, and to turn it into beauty, fabulosity, energy, creativity, Mm. that for me is how I survive. It's something that I wish we would have more of as well and take cue from that within the fat community and within the disabled community who are also in different and more insidious, silent ways uh, ostracized from our mainstream culture and society and just open, it's open season in particular on fat people. So I really, I really feel that. I think it's an amazing philosophy that you've reached. Can you explain to me the history of why we detest hair on someone who isn't deemed um, infinitely masculine? Totally. So we were talking earlier about how different rhetorics are used to just basically hide people's sexism. And one of those rhetorics is hygiene. So a lot of times people be like, the reason we remove our body hair is because it's more hygienic. And it's like, actually, babe, like having body hair allows my body to regulate sweat really well. And it's actually really great for my idea. Also stop stuff from getting into our bits. That's why I never yeah. understand why everyone's waxing off everything around their bum holes and their vaginas. I mean, do what you need to do. You have your own body self-determination. But I think it's important yeah. to understand where these ideas come from. Yeah. So actually what happened in the United States was that body hair became racialized. So there was a fear of immigration in the early 20th century from Eastern European people, from Jewish people, from Greek people. And a lot of white Anglo-Saxon people were like, we're going to lose our dominance. We have to prove that we are the most beautiful, the most advanced, the most civilized people. And so the question of white women's beauty became really important as part of proving the racial supremacy of the United States. And so what happened is body hair became likened to these immigrants and it became racialized and removing body hair became a way of being a good, beautiful white woman. And the narrative around beauty culture at the time was men are fighting war abroad. Women are fighting war at home by being beautiful. (laughs) So the way that you help support the nation was by being beautiful and being beautiful was about buying razors and actually removing your body hair. And people being furry also related to, you were saying, Darwinism. Mm -hmm. That actually this connotation of people who are hairy being something bad has to do with this racist social Darwinism, which believes that black and brown people are closer to animals like apes 
and that white people are closer to humans. So if you have body hair, you're somehow closer to animals and you're less human. Even though it's important to realize here, there are plenty of white people with body hair Mm -hmm. and there's plenty of brown people without body hair. In the same ways in which there are plenty of cis women with body hair and there's plenty of cis men without body hair. But this is just an example of how these stereotypes don't actually care about the reality of our bodies. They're just literally made up to fit into a political agenda. The gender binary was made up in order to fit into a patriarchal agenda. It's not natural. It's a cultural, political, and social construction. Fascinating. God, I have so much, we all have so much to look (laughs) into about where all of our aesthetic decisions come from. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Talk to me about the history of trans and gender non-conforming. Because people feel like it's quite modern, some people. Some people feel <laughs> like it happened sometime around the 80s. But this goes way back, right? We've been here for thousands of years. What is actually new is the Western gender binary. So it's so ridiculous to me that people think that like wearing a skirt is feminine because where I'm from in India, I grew up around the most masculine men ever wearing skirts all the time. We just didn't call them skirts and it didn't disqualify them. Mm -hmm. The sartorial cues that we have of what masculinity are, of what femininity are, are recent historical constructions that emerged in the West during the early 20th century and late um, 19th century. Billy Porter and, and I were talking about this in our episode where we were like, how dumb are trousers? Yeah. Like, what, who, do, who would do that? Who would make a, who would make a dick and a, sh- and like, who would make a shaft and balls pick a side? Like, pick a side that they have to hang on for the rest of the day. What a, what a crazy invention. It so really invention, only makes sense actually, for women. Yeah, go on of those silhouettes um, emerged. There's an amazing book called Sex and Suits, The Evolution of Modern Dress that traces the history of gendering fashion. And what Anne Hollander argues in this book is that actually prior to the 18th and 19th centuries, people of all genders would be wearing makeup, uh, wigs, jewelry, kind of gowns, ornate lace. Fabulous. That actually, yes, it was amazing. But actually gender... Um, was not the criteria for clothing. It was religion, it was class, it was profession. But then what happened is that people began to believe in a gender binary that had never existed in their imagination before. And they were told to be a woman is to be the opposite of being a man. Which people? So fashion designers. But which people? Like what, which part of the world started this bullshit? <laughs> Europe. So European fashion designers started to basically design women's clothes to make them look as different from men's clothes as possible. So here's when we began to see the emergence of the suit as a male garb. And the suit was supposed to pay homage to 
the nude male Grecian sculpture. So the suit was literally supposed to make men look like they had a bigger torso and a leaner legs. and was supposed to emphasize that men were rational, whereas women were supposed to wear incredible corsets, big gowns, to be completely impractical, to prove that women were somehow impractical and ridiculous. And then this justified the economic roles that men and women were siloed into. This is so, so true. Be- Sorry, you've just <laughs> reminded me. I'm, so I'm watching The Great at the moment on, um, on mm-hmm. Hulu and she can't get out of any of her clothes. She keeps having panic <laughs> attacks and she can't get out of, yep. out of any of her clothes on her own because there are so many ties and buttons and just millions of things all the way down the back. So you're stuck in a conflicting, like in a constricting corset in which you cannot breathe and you pass out a lot of the time because if someone isn't around to help you out of it, you are stuck, you're imprisoned in your own gown. And all of the layers and the petticoats which slow you down so you can't run away, let's not even get into heels, how fucking Mm -hmm. crazy they are, even though I love them. Even though heels were first made for men who were riding horses and then became these objects, right? But the reason that we have these kind of stereotypical gendered fashion Mm -hmm. was to support the roles that women and men were designated to in society. And I think this goes to your point that oftentimes when we speak about the binary, we're just focused on people's physical appearances, but it also has to do with our perceptions of competency. Women and the feminist movement have been challenging forever this sexist narrative that women can only be clerks or seamstresses or domestic workers. All these things are important and incredible careers, but a woman can be whatever she wants in the same ways in which a man does not have to be this like top dog business dad. Like a man can also be a a stay at home dad and that doesn't emasculate him. But these kind of roles became situated as part of the kind of industrial enlightened, new enlightenment society that were just focused off of having babies. And this is the point I really want people to understand. The reason that we have two genders is because dividing billions of people into one of two genders that just conveniently be fit into this model that can make babies is because society values us more by our reproductive abilities than by our actual interests our actual dreams, our actual passions. Defining womanhood by your ability to reproduce is the most sexist thing in the world because women should be able to do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. Men should be able to, it, it, like being in a marriage and having children is not an achievement, a congratulation. It's just something that you do. It's not something that we should be ingrained into feeling is the only way that we're successful. It also, and especially, yeah, go on, no finish. Sorry. Growing up in an Indian family, my sister always was told, your career doesn't matter. What matters is your marriage ability. And it doesn't really matter that you're getting an education right now because you're not even going to be working because your man's going to be making the money. And my sister and I have this in common where we say, hey, we're protesting gender norms together because the same norm of woman that mm-hmm. is policing you out, that is telling you that you're too hairy or that you don't have the right body is the same norm of womanhood that is policing me out. And we're going to actually work together to develop ways of saying, hey, I'm me and I get to determine what I do with my life, where I work, what my interests are and what I wear. Your mythologies around gender are irrelevant. And that, once again, is a lesson to me of how we can all come together to say these gender binary norms are toxic 
and they're not helping anyone. And also it pains me whenever I see uh, feminists or people who claim to be feminists saying that the reason that trans women or gender non-conforming people cannot join in with our movement is because they don't menstruate or they cannot carry babies. There are so many cis women who, for whatever reason, don't menstruate and who cannot have babies or maybe don't have uteruses, even from very young ages. This isn't something that just happens in your 60s. And there are so so many men and non-binary people who also menstruate or conveniently lost in that conversation. Exactly. But my point is, is that they are are sitting there trying to protect this cis bubble, not realising that they're, they're actually knocking cis members, technically cis people, out of their own circle based on something that can easily stop happening to any typical cis woman. It just, it doesn't, it's so insensitive and ignorant. uh, I honestly, it blows my mind. In this day and age when we have this much information and we know so much about oppression, we know so much about the emotional and societal impact of oppression and division, how we're still so dedicated to being distracted by it. All of which benefits who? It benefits the patriarchy. I want to ask because, okay, I've got two questions. One of them is because we hear so much about the downside and the painful side and the violent side of living in your truth as a gender non-conforming person or as a trans person. What are the glorious upsides? I'm so glad that you asked that question. Because so often people only engage with trans people through cis people's narrations of our lives. Mm-hmm. I love being trans and I love being gender nonconforming and I would never go any other way in my life because it has brought me so much joy, so much peace, so much presence. For the majority of my life, there was a schism between who I knew myself to be and what I could share with the world. And that haunted me and everything that I was doing and thinking. I was never able to be fully present, but now I'm fully present in my emotional and my emotional self and my spiritual self and my artistic self that I'm able to bring all of me to everything that I do, which makes me funnier, smarter, able to think on my feet a lot more. Much more present. Yeah, present, loving, compassionate there, um, it's the opposite of disassociation. And I don't think we often have that language for what that looks like because we only have the vocabulary often to describe when things are painful and arduous. But what about when things are exhilarating and euphoric and dynamic? Mm. Like I have developed some of the closest romances of my life with my friends, other trans and non-binary people who have given up everything, who have lost access to so much in this world, but we love each other so tenderly and so profoundly because we know what it's like to be hunted and what it's like to be hated. And when I say I use they, them, people say that's a plural pronoun. And I say, yes, it is both singular and it is both plural. And that's what I mean when I say I am gender nonconforming. I say me as a look, I'm gender nonconforming, but I'm also part of this dynamic ragamuffin group of people who are so loving that I don't even need to know anything about them. But when I started touring in my early 20s, I would just be crashing at other gender nonconforming people's apartments across the world. And I felt safe with them. They would coordinate my safety to and from my venues. They would arrange my, like a lot of my early gigs, they would literally arrange clothing for me in my room that the community outsourced together so that when I came, I would have something to wear that I could feel proud of because 
a lot of issues facing the trans community, but one of them is baggage weight restrictions. Oh my God, 20 pounds. Like how I cannot even put one heel in that. And so my community (laughs) would literally crowdsource their clothes to come up with outfits that I could wear at my gigs. And I literally have performed in places like Kampala, Uganda, where from the minute that I'm outside, I have trans women making sure that I'm safe, telling me where to go, where not to go. I've never felt more safe in my life than around trans and gender nonconforming people. And I don't think a lot of people ever have people that they can be that vulnerable with, people that they can share the deepest traumas of their life with. And I have been loved. And I want to give that love to the world because my gender is the product of all the care and the love that I've experienced in my life. It's not just my heroism or my strength. A lot of people will be like, look, how do you wage the battle against the gender binary every day? I'm like, well, it's hard. And then I have people to process it with and it makes it less hard. That things it's are just less-, less hard. It's beautiful. <laughs> like I, I've recently been um, shooting a show uh, for HBO Max called Legendary. And it's about the ballroom community, which is predominantly people of color who are queer or trans or gender nonconforming. And so I have to say, I have never in my life ever witnessed so much love and compassion and strength and ride or die between a community, even the ones who are rivaling against each other, even those who are battling to the emotional death for money, who will shade each other and say horrific shit to each other in front of other people. That will always end in tears, a hug and a kiss and so much love because they haven't been able to rely on their own, you know, uh, families they've been born into. So they've chosen their families. And those bonds are stronger than anything I could ever imagine having, even with the people that I've grown up with. I, and I think I'm that's so in why awe of they, it. That's why they try to police us out, because we're so powerful and we're so magic that the way that we live could change the world. Imagine if people could be this vulnerable. Imagine if people could be this interdependent. There'd be no Imagine war. If people Yes. If people didn't rely on their families of origin to be their only families, but learn that your friends can truly be your family and your greatest love of your life. Mm. And that imagine that. And that's why I try to reframe it to be like the reason they say there's this ironic thing happening where they say you're an insignificant minority and yet they fund millions of dollars to disappear us. If we were so insignificant, Why would they be working so hard to exterminate us? It's because within our modes of living is a way out, is a way out of everything that has led us to this crisis that we're in right now, is a way out that is loving and interdependent. I want to tell a story that illustrates this. Two weeks ago, my best friends, who are all trans and non-binary people of color, assembled a Zoom meeting for me to consult me on my life. (laughs) <laughs> they literally were like, like an intervention. Hey, we w- no, just like, just to check in. Like, and they knew that this would be the best thing in the world for me. Cause talking about feelings is my favorite thing. And so we had a zoom for two and a half hours where everyone shared how they knew me, what they loved about me, what they are, what they get frustrated with me about. And then we just processed my life collectively. And I was like, should I be doing this? Should I do this with my career? What should I do with my dating life? 
what should I do about this book? And then everyone just gave me really thoughtful feedback and was like, hey, let's debrief this afterwards. What comes up for you? Uh, I've got that. I've got that on Twitter all day, every day from complete strangers who I haven't asked for that from, who tell me their right. opinions on um, on my life and what I should be doing. I prefer the sound of your one. I don't want that one. from strangers. No, yeah, I, want I get it, it all the time. Who... <laughs> just unsolicited fucking life advice. I think that's but great that you have that from people that you love. I was telling my mom on the phone, I was like, mom, you know, this just thing has happened. I've feeling so happy. Like I just love my friends so much. I feel love and I know what it's like to actually feel loved. And my mom was like, I'm so jealous. That would have saved me from so many bad decisions in my life. If I could have counsel to actually be like, Hey everyone, I'm thinking about this. Is this what I need to be doing? And that for me is a testament to like, yes, there are difficult and horrific things about living a gender nonconforming life. But there are also incredible and beautiful things. And these things don't even have to be in a binary. The joy about being non-binary is I can hold simultaneity. It's about both and. It's about, yes, I'm grieving, but I'm also loving. Yes, I think that you messed up, but I also forgive you. Yes, I think that you have room for growth and I need you to have boundaries for me for a while. But I also believe that in the future, we might be able to be together. And I think that we live in an extremely dichotomous world right now where people are rehashing binaries all the time of us and them or good and bad or radical or complicit. And I'm like, hey, everyone, these are not the lives that we actually live. The lives that we live are deeply contradictory lives. They're lives that are deeply emotional. They're lives that are deeply needy. Let's be honest about our need and let's stop pretending that we don't need anyone else. Mm, That's so true. It's so beautiful. And trying to imagine a world in which we were all allowed to communicate and tell each other how we really feel like an honest world, an honest world and an emotionally stable world, which we would be if we had access to all those things. You know, there's some times where I, I can't quite understand why we underfund mental health around the world. Like it's so severely underfunded. And there's a part of me that thinks at this point, we have enough information to know that it would benefit the GDP. It would benefit the economy. It would benefit our, all of our working structures and systems in society for all people to be happier and more mentally stable, but we don't fund it. And then there's the little tin hat conspiracy person in me that's like, well, if everyone stays unhappy and unsure and unstable, then they are able to remain easily fear-mongered. Then we can continue to like push them like cattle into these different I'm smiling pens. so hard. You I'm know, snapping so hard. It, it, it helps the people at the very, very top with the darkest agendas so much for yes. us to maintain chaos and for us to eat each other, which you and I have been talking yes. about with the whole rad femme versus uh, turf versus uh, gender nonconforming versus trans ally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're all just eating each other. We need to it, adopt this more loving and accepting way of life. It's the whole point of this podcast. Okay, Alok. How do people, because this is why you've written Beyond the Gender Binary, you've written this mm-hmm. book as, uh, I guess it's almost kind of a, a manual of sorts to mm-hmm. those who would like to join in with this fight and, and be allies. Can you give us some nuggets of gold advice for those of us who wish to be allies and better supporters of not just gender nonconforming people and trans people, but also of a better world? Absolutely. So I wrote Beyond the Gender Binary because so many people tell me that they genuinely support trans and gender non people, but they just don't know what to do and what to say. 
and that they're having arguments with their families where their family is just saying these horrific things, Mm -hmm. but they don't know how to have rebuttals. And so what I wanted this to be is kind of a handbook for people to go into hostile environments because there are so many. And those hostile environments are not just in our legislature, but also in our homes, right? Mm -hmm. And to actually argue with mom and dad and say, okay, when you say these are biological men, let me actually explain to you why that's messed up. And I explain in this book kind of bite-sized ways to have these conversations that are infused by history, which I think is one of the biggest arguments for trans life, which is that all of these gender norms are recent and were created in the West. And if you actually care about, you know, the global majority of the world, (laughs) you think that you should look outside of there, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, literally tangible things that you can do to respond. So the first thing I really want people to do is to have courageous conversations. When you are not speaking to transphobic people in your life, they're speaking to us, whether it's online, in person, or through policy. And we need everyone to be having courageous conversations to actually educate people because ignorance is an organizing strategy. And ignorance has been recruiting and doing push-ups for hundreds of years. <laughs> and now we need to exercise intelligence. And to exercise intelligence means we don't shame people. We cannot shame people for not knowing things. People do not know things because they've been organized into ignorance. So we need to actually have compassionate conversations where we say, I'm sorry that your education system didn't teach you this, but here are some things that are really important to me. And it's important to frame it as important to you because so often people have conversations like it's important that we support insert minority group. Babe, it's also about the kind of world you want to live in. There's Mm -hmm. no dignity in living in a world where Black trans women are being murdered. There's absolutely no dignity living in a world where trans and gender nonconforming genius is being policed out of the entertainment industry. Imagine how much better Hollywood would be if there were actually more trans and gender nonconforming people in it. They've got no new stories. They keep doing remakes because there's nothing more to say. They've exhausted the binary. They've exhausted the straight story. We still don't see any stories of people with disabilities or short people or fat people or people who are gender nonconforming. There are a million stories out there that haven't been told. It's embarrassing to me that with all of the representation that white cis straight men have, they still don't know how to date. They still don't know how to dance. I'm like, you literally have a million movies. I've got zero and I'm still figuring it out. And um, so with this book, it's about having creative conversations. And then I think the second piece is about educating yourself on the status of trans rights where you are locally. Because oftentimes a lot of people only focus on the countrywide level, but a lot of these anti-trans bills are happening at the local and state level. So it's important to familiarize yourself with organizations that are working for trans rights in your local context, and then reach out to those organizations and see what they could use support with. During the pandemic, a lot of trans young people right now are experiencing a lot of harassment and violence at home. So there's been some amazing initiatives that have been created to support trans young people. Because it's really important to understand here, and I want to, I really want this point to make it to people. When gay marriage got legalized in the United States, many cisgender and straight people thought that was the end of the LGBT rights movement. And in fact, a lot of cis gay white men thought so too. But what happened is that that's when they moved their focus and their ire to trans people in the United States. And there started to be hundreds of anti-trans legislation, but all of the funding went away because donors were like, oh, we're, we're done, it's over. Because cis gay men were like, oh, we, we've achieved equality. We don't really care about these other people. And so what you have to happen was a movement that was being led by 
black and brown, low income, trans and gender nonconforming people who didn't have access to the resources to actually resist any of these laws. And you have a largely under-resourced movement. So for me, it's not, it's not just about showing up for trans people symbolically. It's about thinking, how do we also give resources to trans and gender non-conforming people? How do we give economic opportunities? Because so many of us have been kicked out of education institutions, have been kicked out of our career trajectories when we decided to declare our, our gender publicly. How do we actually think, okay, I'm now uh, creating a new organization. I'm going to have an internship program specifically to build the leadership of trans people that is paid. There's so many creative ways that we can help out trans and gender mm-hmm. non-conforming people. And, and I think it's really important now more than ever because this pandemic is going to worsen every inequality that there ever was. And trans and gender non-conforming people were already struggling, but are now going to be struggling even more. I know so many trans artists that are my peers that are like, I can't be an artist anymore. And that just breaks my heart because I'm like, like the most brilliant people in the world deserve platforms. Mm -hmm. But so often these people are ignored. Well, Beyond the Gender Binary, Alok's book is available this week. And I suggest everyone goes out and buys it. And parents, this is a good book for you to have, uh, just in case your child needs that information for themselves or for their friends. I think that this is information we all need because this is a bigger part of our society and then the media lets us know about. And it's time for us to stop gatekeeping. It's so embarrassing. It's so short-sighted. It's so and it's so lone- and it's so boring. And, so lonely and boring. Um, Alok, <laughs> thank you for giving me so much of your time. Uh, before you go, will you tell me, please, what do you weigh? I weigh my deep compassion for everyone and everything in the world. I weigh my belief in the transformation of myself and of every sentient being. I weigh vulnerability, uh, which creates space for other people to feel. I weigh my art and my poems and my images and all of the beauty that I bring to the world. But most of all, I weigh all of the love and the care that I've been showered with my entire life. Yay! Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate your candor and your passion and your eloquence and your dedication to do the work to educating the rest of us. Not everyone has the has the energy left to do the labor and and I completely understand that and thank you for being that person for us. Alok, I love you very much. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Aaron Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code IWAY. Lastly, over at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com. And now... We would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. I weigh my strength, my progress, my past experiences, and my identity as a queer disabled person, and all of 
the opportunities for being creative has brought me. Me from Wales. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.